0: even of the ushers who, despite my lack of um, uh, calling them up, were faithful in coming forward. All, all the things that are going on in, in, in our minds, my mind particularly, all, all the things that we may be struggling with that we've had to deal with this last week or, or maybe this coming week, we ask that you help us to lay those at your feet right now, that those things would be removed from our minds, that our focus would solely be upon you, that those burdens that we may have carried into this room would not leave this room with us, that our our lives would be changed, transformed as we leave today. And so, Lord, as is our tradition, we ask that you um, be with our pastors. We thank you so much from Mike Atkinson, Pastor Mike Butler, Pastor Mike Car- uh, <laughs> Pastor Mike C., Pastor Mike Ostheimer, Lord, we ask that you would just bless them right now, Lord. Use them for your glory. Give them a clear vision for our church. We ask that you be with those that are elders, Larry and Ron, and Lord, we ask that you would just help us as a church to move forward, to grow, and to be used by you, to be helpful in those that are around us, blessings to those that love you lord we ask that you would help us to grow deeply in love with you our faithful uh god in jesus name we pray amen and amen mike cosper that's who it was man i'm bad with names this is one of the most romantic books in the bible at the beginning of april we did a study on Wednesday nights of the book of Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon. And, and it was one of those beautiful books about this newlywed couple on their honeymoon. And I, I told the people on Wednesday nights, this is a, the second most romantic book in the Bible. This, Hosea, is the most romantic book In the Bible, you read the prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, all the way up to Malachi. And each and every single one of them had a particular prophecy, a particular thing that they had to do in their lives to demonstrate the Word of God. Isaiah, if you're coming on Wednesday nights, we're now in the chapter 11 of Isaiah, and we see in the life of Isaiah, he literally foretold the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ, the holy, holy, holy God incarnate who came to this earth, Emmanuel, a child born of a virgin. And all these things would come true 700 years in the future. Or Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of those other prophets who had to do many, many hard things in his life, whether it was fasting or laying on his left side for 390 days and his right side for another 40 days after that. He had to eat bread that was roasted over dung. All these things that the prophets had to endure. And you look at the life of Hosea, it wasn't just uh, actions that he had to take, but literally his whole entire family represented the prophecies of God. His whole entire marriage represented the faithfulness of God. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, he literally had to name his children after the coming horrific, tragic events that would happen to the northern kingdom of Israel. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 3, we read, So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. God's telling Hosea, this is the name that I want you to call your son. And literally that name Jezreel means God sows. For a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Yehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. His firstborn son was the prediction of of the destruction of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. How would you like to have a son like that? Where knowing every single time you would call your son, it's a prediction of the destruction of your nation that you live in and love dearly. Verse five, it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the Valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and she bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah. Not only his son being named after the events of the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, but now his daughter literally having the name No-Mercy. Every single time you would call out your daughter's name, being reminded of what is happening within the northern kingdom of Israel, that God will show no mercy during the time of their destruction. For I no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. What will happen to the northern kingdom of Israel? Those 10 tribes that separated after the time of King Solomon, when his son Rehoboam came onto the throne and became king over Jerusalem. 10 of the tribes leave. They follow this guy by the name of Jeroboam. And the northern kingdom of Israel is established. And within seven years after the death of Hosea, These prophecies come to pass in 722 B.C., the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. Each and every single one of his children predicting that this would happen. Or his last son. Verse 8. Now when she had weaned lo she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name lo Not my people. The very youngest of his sons, the very youngest of his children, every time he would call out that name, predicting what would happen to the northern kingdom of Israel, as it says in the rest of that verse For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. The destruction is imminent. Hosea's life and ministry was a display of God in the midst of an unfaithful people. You see, this wasn't just a one-time thing. There had been prophets, many, many prophets before that had come to the northern kingdom of Israel, including Elijah way back in the Kings. Remember Elijah? What did he do? There on Mount Carmel, battling the prophets of Baal, those many, many prophets, hundreds of prophets. And what happened with the display of God? Fire from heaven itself. Proving who God was. But did that change the minds of the northern kingdom of Israel? No. Every single king was bad from Jeroboam the first to Jeroboam the second, all the way throughout the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Faithfulness is adhering firmly and devotedly to a person, a cause, or an event. Many times we define faithfulness in human terms. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I have been unfaithful. I've been unfaithful to James. Uh, The very first time he invited me over to his house, I forgot. I had other things that were going on. I've been unfaithful to many of the, the men in this Church, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I can call them on a Friday morning and immediately they will have my Monday night and my Wednesday morning covered for the next week. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I can call certain men and they will be there. But are we always 100% faithful? No. What happens in our lives? Things come up and we have to evaluate am I going to be faithful in this situation? Or faithful in that situation. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. That I serve a God. Who will always be faithful to me. It says in Deuteronomy. Chapter 7 verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God. He is God. The faithful God. Who keeps his covenant. And his loving kindness. To a thousandth generation. With those who love him. And keep His commandments. If you believe in a young earth uh, theory or a young earth creation, that literally the earth was created within seven days and approximately 6,000 years later, we are here now. Every generation, 20 years approximately, five generations every hundred years. That's only means that there's only been 300 generations on the earth. Does God have a lot more generations to go? Is God a faithful God? Even to the thousandth generation. Hosea had to literally show the faithfulness of God, not just in his children's lives, who represented the destruction that's going to come to the nation of Israel, but also in his marriage as well. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 2, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. Not only were his children named after various prophetic events that would take place, but his very marriage as well. The unfaithfulness of a wife whom he knew would leave him. And him having to represent the faithfulness of God, having every single right to divorce her. But within the prophetic events that he has to represent, knowing that he must be faithful to someone who is unfaithful. Someone who is faithless. Someone who is going to literally sleep around the town and he a prophet of god having to represent the faithfulness of god to an unfaithful woman and then representing god himself to an unfaithful nation you see in second kings chapter 14 26-27, uh, to for the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the very first king of the northern kingdom of Israel representing the faithlessness of a kingdom that God was faithful to despite their lack of faith in their God. You see, harlotry was a very common theme in the prophetic works of the prophets. In Malachi... Chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. A marriage was always meant to be, and we have to define it this way, unfortunately, Just like when we were going through the book of Song of Solomon, we have to define it this way in our culture on purpose. A a biological male with one biological female in a monogamous marriage. This was the design of God for marriage. Something that would last from the time that the vows were taken until literally death do us part. The faithfulness of a faithful God. Unfortunately, what has happened just within the last 18 months, you know, you see it on the news. What happened to many, many marriages in 2020, or relationships in general? You get stuck with the same person. Can't even leave the house. And what happens? Especially if your house isn't very big. Yeah, Many, many problems happen. People fall apart. The little things that you could run away from, you can no longer run away from, and they become humongous problems in a relationship. Faithfulness in the midst of sin always produces discipline. Faithfulness in the midst of sin Always produces discipline. You see, despite the fact that the people of Israel were faithless, unfaithful, God in his faithfulness loved the people enough to discipline them, to refine them, to bring them back into a relationship with him. In Proverbs chapter 13 verse 24 it says, "He holds his rod, hate or withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him uh, diligently. There's an act of faithfulness and love when you discipline. On Wednesday or Monday nights, we're going through the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel was called to be a watchman. A watchman, by definition, observed or watched I know it's an amazing concept, but the idea that the watchmen were watchers, right? But then not only were they supposed to watch, but they were supposed to warn as well. And the responsibility on the watchmen was to warn the people of impending doom. Is doom coming to the nation of Israel? And Hosea has to stand up as a representative of God, of faithfulness in the midst of a marriage that he has to endure of a faithless wife, an unfaithful spouse. Hosea chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. this unfaithful wife going after her lovers, thinking that they're providing for, thinking that they're paying for her body. But in verse 7, it says, she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than then now. Do you see the picture that is represented in the New Testament of this exact same thing? We call it the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I I can imagine a a father with a, a prodigal son literally running through the streets of the city looking for his son. And then when he finds him wrapping his arms around him and the joy of bringing back a, a prodigal son to a reconciliation between father and son but then to imagine in the life of Hosea a uh, written some 700 years before Jesus gave the parable of the prodigal son and having this representation not of a father and a son but of a husband and a wife. And then to represent that for the nation of Israel, verse 8, for she does not know that it was I who gave her her grain. It was I who gave her her new wine and her oil and lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal, who was providing for his wife in the midst of her unfaithfulness? Her husband. Do you understand what is being represented here? That even in the midst of my unfaithfulness, does God still reach out to me? And does he still give me his common blessing? Oh yes, even to the entire world, it says in Romans chapter one, we all get to experience the blessings of creation itself and they are to remind us of who God is in his faithfulness to an unfaithful world. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we get a little bit of a a deeper a picture, an image of what it was like for God with the nation of Israel. It says, In the word of the Lord came to me saying, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Uh, describing literally all the way back to the descendancy of Abraham himself, where he came from the land of Ur, related to the Amorites and the Hittites, moon worshipers and sun worshipers, and God called them out. Verse 4, as for your birth on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with blood. For cleansing, you were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped enclosed no eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you rather you were thrown out into the open field for you were abhorred on the day you were born and that little baby writhing in their own blood the navel cord hanging out and god takes mercy upon a people that did not deserve mercy. In fact, if you remember the story of Abraham in the covenant that God makes with Abraham himself, where was Abraham in the midst of that covenant? Asleep on the ground and it was God who walked through those split sacrifices and it was God who made the covenant with Israel with Abraham and Isaac and then later on with Jacob verse 6 this image continues and by the way this is very very graphic that there is no sugarcoating in the bible especially in the book of ezekiel and when i passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood i said to you while you were in your blood live yes i said to you while you were in your blood uh, live i made a like i made you like numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up, you became tall. You reached the age of for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed. Your hair was grown, yet you were naked and bare. And then I passed by you. I saw you and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you. I covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and I entered into a covenant with you, so that you became mine, declares the Lord uh, God. The covenant that God made with the nation of Israel was lifelong, everlasting. The amazing thing is, and we can understand this from a human perspective, there, there's a, a time period with which a, a marriage will eventually end. One person will die. But how long does the covenant of God last? In a relationship between God and a nation where God is infinite, where God is everlasting, where God will never die, how long will the covenant last? Forever and ever and ever. Verse 9, then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth. I put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, a beautiful crown on your head, and thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, oil, so that you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty, the promised land at the feet of Israel, just given to them by the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, but unfortunately, what happened in verse 14? Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. The history of Israel within a chapter, the history of Israel within an image that we can see, Uh, the, the history of Israel in this image of literally bright before us seeing the blood, and then literally this beautiful girl. Coming forth, the nation of Israel, God making a covenant with her. And what did she do with her beauty? What did she do with her fame? What did she do with all the blessings that God had given to her as a nation? Grasping after every single passerby that would take her. You took some of your clothes, you made for yourselves high places of various colors and you played the harlot on them, which should never be have come about nor happened. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you may play the harlot with them. And then you took your embroidered cloth and you covered them and you offered my oil and my incense before them. All these blessings that God had given to Israel, what were they using them for? committing harlotry with other gods, with other idols. And uh, Hosea, in the midst of his marriage, is having to show the same thing, not through the eyes of an imagery of a nation, but through the eyes of the imagery of his own life. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 18, or verse 19 Also, my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter? You slaughtered my children, and you offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Beside all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. And we can accuse Gomer, we can accuse Israel. We can look at other people and say, that person is unfaithful. You can look at your spouse and say, that person is unfaithful. But have you ever looked at yourself? Because all of us, every single one, without exception, have been unfaithful at a time before God. And we forget what God has given to us. The mercies And the grace that God has given to us. Faithfulness always produces restoration. You see, this is where we again read the same exact portion of Hosea that we read at the beginning. But now we're looking at it from a different perspective, hopefully. This is no longer a, a, you know, a, a virgin groom going after a beautiful supermodel virgin wife. No, this is Hosea going after an, a faithless woman who has literally slept around town. The breath stinks. The mouth is, you know, has missing teeth. The hair is scraggly. She is a used-up harlot. And God is now, through the mouth of Hosea, reaching out to her and saying the same exact phrase, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will woo her. I will entice her. I will romance her. The one who was faithless, the one who was unfaithful, the one who did not deserve love, I will reach out to her isn't that beautiful isn't that romantic and you can see it maybe in a movie a movie form and and, and you know some sort of fictional sense, but literally to have it in your own marriage, where Hosea has to perform these deeds of romancing his wife back into a relationship with him. And the question is, why doesn't she have to do it to me? It's her that should be wooing me. It's her that should be winning my heart back. It's her that should be making herself look good for me but it's always the faithful one that pays the highest price. It's always the faithful one who understands the price of grace and mercy. It continues on in verse 15, and hopefully again, a new perspective on these verses, these romantic verses. I will give her her vineyards from there. All those, all those things that she'd squandered, God's going to give it back to her. And the valley of Acor, which literally means uh, the, the, the valley of despair, the valley of loss, the valley of bitterness, that's going to become a door of hope. Or she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, looking all the way back, to the time when God freed the nation of Israel from bondage and brought them across the Red Sea and there in the wilderness where they would have to wander for 40 years until every single one of those that did not believe would enter into the promised land. And what would they do with that promised land? Just like what we read in the book of Ezekiel, they would squander it. They would use the blessings of God to run after idols, to run after other gods. They would commit harlotry. Verse 16, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me. And in the Hebrew, it says this beautiful nickname, Ishi. This beautiful term of endearment, uh, my dear or or beautiful or handsome or or all the nicknames that you may give uh, to your spouse. One that you love dearly. All those romantic times where you call one another to be reminded again that she will be brought back into a relationship with the faithful one. Unlike the idols which she called and no longer call me my master, and literally this word is Baali, the the gods that she would have worshipped in her sin, the gods that she would have worshipped in her un faithfulness and we can, again we can look at israel we can blame israel we can look at this relationship and we can say i don't have any idols in my house i don't have any idols in my life and it's so easy to say well that's from a third world country or that's from that time but do you understand that we do have idols in our lives it's those things that we you know we hold it in our hands It's anything that we put before the place of God. It's all those things that take our love for God and replaces it for our love for something else. Even those things that we may call hobbies or those things that vie for our time when we should be worshiping or talking with the Lord. Verse 17, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. How faithful is our God. How faithful is our God. The God of the universe whom we are unfaithful to is saying, I will remove the very names of those things that you put before me because I am faithful to you. He will never bring it up again. That's a hard thing not to do. Because in any relationship, what do we want to do with those past sins, with those past unfaithful things? We want to, you know, especially if we're in the right, what do we want to do? We want to bring it up. We want to push it in. We want to remind them of their unfaithfulness. But what does God do? He doesn't. He doesn't remind us of our faithfulness what does he do instead? He reminds us of his faithfulness. And that's what he does in the next verse there in verse 18. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle. I will shatter from the earth. I will make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Isn't that amazing? This relationship now starting literally new again. The unfaithful things being remembered no longer. And God in his faithfulness making a covenant again with the same person, again who was once unfaithful. And God in his faithfulness saying, I betroth you to me for the rest of my life, which is forever. And ever and ever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You shall know the Lord. This word know. It's the biblical word no that always goes back to the time of Adam and Eve when Adam knew Eve. That intimacy face to face, the procreation of children, the desire between a loving husband and a loving a wife to come together and romance one another again. This is the faithfulness of God. But it doesn't stop there. You see, in the rest of the chapter, what does it say? Verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day when God again reaches out to Israel that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth The earth shall answer with grain and with new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Remember the name of their firstborn son. God sows that predicted the time when Israel will be wiped out. Now changing that time, changing that name to a name of hope where God will sow something new and good. And then as it continues on in verse 23, then I will sow her for myself in the earth. Jezreel again being repeated, God sows. And I will have mercy on who had not obtained a mercy. Literally the name of his second born child, Ruama, Changed to from Lo Ruami to Lo Ruhama, literally the name of saying, I had no mercy, now I will show mercy. The mercy of God repeated over and over and over again, changing a name that meant literally next to nothing and now changing it to a name that brings hope and love, and mercy, and grace, and then their third-born son portrayed in the rest of this verse, then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. Lo ami changed to ami. You shall say, you are my God. The beauty of the faithful God reaching out to the unfaithful. And we can say, well, that was written 2,700 years ago. What does it have to do today? The New Testament also says the exact same thing. In fact, in the book of Romans, it quotes these same exact verses. In Romans chapter 9, verse 23, it says this, And he did so to make the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even whom us. Those that are reading the book of Romans right now, those that were reading Romans at that time, 2000 years ago, and those of us that read the book of Romans again, and it says, whom he also called not from among the Jews only, thank God, because if it was by a nationality, by a genealogy, Most of us wouldn't make it, but also from among Gentiles, all those that were not Jews, those that were not the chosen people of God. As it says in verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall come to be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. God reaching out, not just to a nation, but to us as well. The other people, the not my peoples, the not Chosen God reaches out to the Gentiles as well. At the end of the book of Hosea, chapter 10, verse 12, it says, This sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to reign righteousness. On you. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Isn't that an amazing verse? Where God is reaching out to an unfaithful people in order to bless them immensely. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Most of you know this verse, probably even by heart. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It's called the great exchange. My sin for his righteousness and his righteousness for my sin. Even when I was an enemy of God, what did he do for us? He loved us fully. In fact, that's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10 For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his. Life now. Normally, I don't quote you know people that are uh, uh, you know not pastors or, or Christians or anything, but I I ran across this beautiful quote by Oscar Wilde. It says, "Those who are faithless know the pleasures of love. It is the faithful who know love's tragedies. To understand what it means to be in a relationship where it is uneven." And we may even say it's unfair. Why should I have to reach out to a person who has been unfaithful to me? Well, why should I have to reach out to someone who has hurt me? Well, why should I have to allure someone who doesn't deserve any form of romantic treatment whatsoever? And the question always goes back to, what about you and God? Does God reach out to us? Even in the midst of the depths of our sin, does God love us? And does He still show us grace and mercy beyond all comprehension or even our understanding? Yes, He does. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. The very essence of who God is is faithful. The very essence of who God is in his attribute is faithfulness. And this is the perfect segue into communion. This is the perfect segue into understanding what it means to have communion with the God of the universe who came to this earth and died for you and me. So I invite you, there's uh, tables around the the auditorium, Uh, just come up and and get one of these things as I I read uh, the next section here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. And just hold on to your cup as we uh, uh, will be taking communion together corporately. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are proved may be recognized among you. Uh, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God? Shame those who have nothing What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not uh, praise you. Paul in describing uh, the communion service in the Corinthian church is literally saying you are doing it the wrong way. Some of you are coming in early. Those that have wealth or the means to not have to work and you show up early and you consume all the food before those that have to work all day can come and enjoy the communion meal with you. And so in the very next section, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Paul gives a warning. And the warning is for us today as well. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And so this morning I ask, as you look at this cup, as you think about what God has done for you, the faithful one loving the unfaithful, faithful, that we would examine ourselves before we take uh, this communion together, that that we would individually examine our lives, those secret sins that we may have, those secret unfaithful things that we do in the privacy of our own room or closet or place or phone or TV or whatever it is that we put before God. That we would examine ourselves now before we take this communion corporately together. And so now for just a couple of minutes, in silence, uh, just examine your heart and confess those things to uh, the Lord. Father, it's so hard to sit in silence. It's uncomfortable. It's hard to look at myself, to examine my own heart, to, to seek out those things in my life that I have been unfaithful in. And around this room, as we examine our hearts, I ask that you would help us to see those things where we not only fall short, not only the my bads or the oops, or or the the little white things that we say are are just white sins or or just mistakes, but that we, we would examine ourselves and see those things as iniquity and sin that we would see those things as, as failings on our part before a holy, righteous, faithful God who has made a covenant with us, not just for our lifetime, but for your lifetime. And so today as we take this communion, remind us again of your faithfulness to us. Remind us again of your love for us. Remind us again of who you are, in your abundant grace and mercy. 1 Corinthians continues on. In verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And I know this is just a, a wafer. We we understand that this is just a, a, a piece of, you know, uh, gluten-free, you know, rice. But to understand as you chew on this, that it is a sacrament. It, it is the representation of Jesus Christ breaking his body for us. And as it says... In these verses that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me as we share this bread Together, uh, corporately, as you chew on that bread, remember what Jesus Christ did for you. The faithful one dying for the faith unfaithful people. It continues on in verse 25. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This dew is often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And of course, this uh, juice that we get to partake in. This juice is the representation of Jesus' blood shed for us. To understand that not only was Jesus broken for us, was Jesus betrayed for us. The faithful one who deserved none of the punishment was unjustly crucified for you and for me. So as we partake of the juice together, remember what Jesus Christ did uh, for you. But it doesn't end there. And I love that communion can continue and can continue and can continue. It says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you understand what you are doing by partaking of communion in a a community sense or in, in a corporate sense? You are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. The faithful one fulfilling every single one of his promises. The faithful one coming back for those who do not deserve mercy. The faithful one coming back for those who do not deserve faithfulness. The faithful one coming back for those who in their entire lives have been unfaithful to him. The God of the universe loving his creation. In Lamentations chapter three, verse 21, it says this beautiful phrase, this I recall to my mind, uh, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every single day that I see the sun rise, what does it remind us of? The faithfulness of God. And if you come on on Wednesday nights, the first Wednesday night, of every single month, we always do what the disciples did with Jesus because after their communion service, as they were going up to the Mount of Olives for that time when Jesus would weep and cry and his disciples would fall asleep, they sang a hymn. This hymn that that we get to sing today, I just want to read the first uh, verse for you. It says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Though there is no shadow of turning with thee, God will never be unfaithful to us. Not even an inkling or a, a hint of unfaithfulness in our God. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be please stand with me and join me in singing this hymn great is thy faithfulness O god my father there is no shadow of turning with thee thou changest not thy compassions they fail not as thou hast been thou forever will be great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning by morning the mercies i see that th- th- have needed thy hand hath provided Great is thy faithfulness, hold on to me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness mercy and love great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning by morning the mercies i see all i have needed thy hand hath Provided, great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. I know, dear Presence, to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness on to me and so father this morning as we continue in worshiping you as we continue before your throne as we continue remembering what you have done for us help us to never Forget how long the covenant lasts. Help us to never forget how long your faithfulness lasts. Help us to never forget every single time we have the privilege of taking communion together that you will faithfully return again, and Lord, we cry out, Maranatha, Maranatha, Maranatha. Lord, we know that your return is imminent. We will see your faithfulness before us. Lord, we glorify you. We thank uh, you for being faithful to those who are faithless, those who are unfaithful. Thank you for faithfully fulfilling every single one of your promises to us. And most of all, for the promise that you will return again. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.